0: welcome to episode 14 of significant watches this is eric wind joined here by my colleagues tony treyna gabriel Benador, and charles edward dunn known by the moniker clubhouse charlie to all of you that remember that infamous app uh, so we are here to talk about the geneva auctions uh by the time you hear this podcast the Geneva auctions will probably be done, Um, but we did want to give a little preview about that. I actually wanted to open with a fun story, if you can humor me, Uh, Charlie insisted that I read this. Uh, It's in the book, Churchill, A Very Peculiar History, which I picked up in the bookshop of the Churchill Museum in London, a couple weekends ago when I went for an Arsenal versus Manchester United game. Uh, and I happened to pick this book up thinking my son Charlie, uh, eight years old, would enjoy it. Um, and uh, literally the first page I open to is page 40, and it's A Lost Watch is the title of the page. A Lost Watch. The strange tale of the valuable watch lost and found while he was at Sandhurst is revealing of both Churchill's determination and the fraught relationship with his father. Lord Randolph had given him the dent watch, complete with half-hunter case, and the family coat of arms engraved and enameled on the back. While leaning over the river Blackwater that ran through the college grounds, The horrified cadet saw it it fall from his pocket into deep water. After diving in without success, he paid for more than 20 of his fellow cadets to dig out a separate course for the river, then commandeered the Sandhurst fire engine to pump the spot dry. By these desperate measures, he retrieved the watch and Churchill sent it off to Dents for repair. By rotten luck, Lord Randolph visited the shop soon after it arrived, and discovered that his son had let him down yet again. Quote, when I get back, get it back from Mr. Dent, unquote, he wrote sternly, Quote, I shall not give it back to you. Unquote. True to his word, he sent a cheaper replacement. <laughs> I just love that. Of course Den famously did uh, the Big Ben Clock uh, in the at Parliament and uh, was one of the most prestigious English uh, watch and clock makers uh, so I read that to my kids and to Charlie Dunn and Christine, my wife and we all enjoyed it uh, so with with that as uh sort of pretext for our conversation,
1: <laughs> let's discuss what's happening in the world of watches right now. Can we also discuss how Eric's phone is never on silent? It's, it's been disappointing to all of our listeners, similar to the disappointment by Lord Randolph and his son. It's a, we, we
0: get a few messages a week. Uh, years, so.
2: If one thing is going to bring down our Apple reviews, it's Eric's cell phone. Maybe it's,
0: uh, maybe it's a secret
2: attempt to get people to pay attention to what we're saying. Cause they hear the little thing like,
0: uh,
2: a Pavlovian chime. People tell me that it, it causes them to reach into their pocket thinking it's their phone. So, um, I think it does. I think it's distracting, uh, if anything. Um, but anyway, as, as Eric turns his phone onto, onto vibrate and or silent, um, Eric, you know, maybe we'll start here. It's been a few weeks since we got on mic. Obviously, there haven't been uh, a big set of public auctions since last November, December. So maybe you could start by giving us a feel for what's been happening in in the market more broadly as we head into Geneva and then Hong Kong and some New York auctions over the next few weeks.
0: Yeah, now is the heart of uh, watch auction season two times a year. Of course, May and June, Geneva, Hong Kong, New York then november and december again geneva hong kong new york with sotheby's hong kong being an outlier before all of this uh typically in april and october because they group all of their luxury auctions together in hong kong which christie's does as well um, so they rent kind of one hotel and put them all together people don't often realize that why that's the case, but, uh, it's just for cross promotion. So you have the same person bidding in the handbag auction, the watch auction, jewelry auction, some of the art auctions they have as well, and wine, uh, and alcohol auction. Uh, so, um, the market, I would say on the high end hype stuff, uh, particularly, you know, Richard Meal, Nautilus and Royal Oak, um I'd say there's been a very minor kind of correction in prices. 5711s and steel have definitely come down a bit a lot more on the market. That's not a surprise. It's not a rare watch. I would bet at least 20,000 more made between 2006 and 2020. So all of them selling, you know, close to $200,000 is maybe not going to last forever if you know, a several thousand people wanted to sell them out of the group. Um, but uh, which, you know, many of those people paid $25,000 for them. So uh, it's not a surprise people might want to take a profit. Um, what's going to be very interesting is how Royal Oaks do. I'm obviously, I, l- I love the Royal Oak. I'm, I cannot believe how many Royal Oaks are coming up for sale over the period of four days in Geneva. Um, obviously Phillips has their 88 Royal Oak uh, auction, um, but we saw a ton come out of the woodwork. My mouth was on the floor when I was, my jaw was on the floor when I was looking at the Sotheby's Geneva auction and saw 47 in their primary auction out of 140 lots. Uh, so, you know, uh, over a third of their auction are Royal Oaks. Then they have another 14 in their online auction. Christie's has 22 in their Geneva auction on Monday, then 14 more in their online auction. Antiquorum has 35 in their live auction out of 534. So uh, it's a total of, my math is correct, 223 Royal Oaks, between the Geneva live auctions and Geneva online auctions over, you know, the live auctions are over four days, Saturday through Tuesday, obviously Phillips, Antiquorum, Christie's and Sotheby's over a total of 1,753 watches total. If my math is correct and that's almost 13% of that group are Royal Oaks. So it's, uh, It's pretty nuts. Obviously, I hope there are enough bidders to support, uh, you know, strong prices for that number of watches. But that's a lot of watches. It's a lot of dollars (laughs) tied up in those 223 Royal Oaks. um, And uh, it's kind of insane.
2: (laughs) Eric, just out of curiosity, sort of an average Geneva auction when you were at Christie's in 2017, how many Royal Oaks would you put on? I feel like
0: it was maybe one percent or two percent. You'd have a couple, um, you know, out of out of like 150 or 200, you might get two or three. So it is uh, it is
2: peak Royal Oak time
0: right now, uh, and it's it's gonna be crazy.
2: Gabe, since we last spoke, uh, you know, a lot of things have been happening in the world, obviously that we don't need to talk about here. But from a watch collecting perspective, has the way you approach collecting or things that you've been interested in, has it changed at all? Um, Maybe specifically since Eric was talking about the, you know, all of the Royal Oak hype um, heading into the weekend. uh, What are your thoughts on sort of what's happening with the Royal Oak and what you expect to see this weekend as well there?
3: Yeah, I think, I think we're going to see a lot of big numbers for Royal Oaks. I, I would anticipate that the prices will come down. Uh, in the next couple of weeks following this auction. I mean it's the these are the cream of the crop and everything else is uh, not as not as special. I, I think uh, we're gonna see prices drop for fifteen two oh twos certainly and for fifteen five hundreds, uh fifteen four hundreds, three hundreds, whatever, that kind of stuff, that's not that's not particularly special. Um I think uh also a couple of the offshores that that are gonna well, by the wayside uh, they're just they're just not as desirable um yeah i mean look we're still kind of in this peak hype uh, moment where you know i mean it, it's hard to get anything of interest or anything that people are kind of waking up to even with a lot of these indies it's you know the they're, they're just people buying them by the handfuls even even you know newer collectors who have the means are just kind of ordering everything under the sun to get, you know, that one or two things that they want. Uh, so it's, it's very difficult to get, to get certain pieces. And, you know, I, I've been buying more and more vintage and, you know, more and more obscure vintage stuff. And, you know, thankfully there's always a more obscure corner of the marketplace to find yourself where nobody else has any interest other than you. Um, which is kind of cool, but I mean, you know, I, I think, uh, I think, you know, the vintage Pateks are, are in the, and the complicated Pateks are going to make a, a very strong run coming up. I, I mean, there's some, you know, it feels like every auction we're seeing there's more twenty four ninety nines, more fifteen eighteens pink, pink, more good fifteen eighteens in yellow, you know, 39 74s, um, all those special Pateks that are, that are going to make big numbers. And, you know, it's, it's been a lot of really high quality stuff. You know, I think that, that Simon Wiesenthal, um, Patek, which I really like is going to, uh, is going to make some, some serious waves there. So it it's, it's tough out there to get a deal these days. Um, you know, there's not much, uh, there's not much in the way of discounts anymore or, you know, things that are, that are seemingly undervalued. It's, uh, you know, undervalued is like a hundred thousand dollars
2: these day. I've got vintage Patek flag for us to get back to. So we'll come back to that. Uh, you've got to give us one obscure vintage pick before we, before we get back to the Royal Oak for a few minutes. Uh, what's an obscure vintage pick that you, that you've been looking at lately?
3: Oh, I can't give away my secrets, but, uh, <laughs> but like, really obscure military watches you know things that from militaries that that are of no consequence at all um just kind of
2: looking for for don't talk about the french military like that gabe come on
3: (laughs) no no i mean things like the ugandan military and you know uh, these places that that never had enough uh funds to make any significant orders but have there are a couple of interesting pieces, you know, chronographs and the like, uh, from, from here and there. Uh, that's kind of, you know, what I've, what I've been looking at, um, you know, a couple of world war two era stuff, non access I promise, but that kind of era stuff that that's, that's around.
2: Um, okay. Well, I guess DM Gabe for his secrets, if you want to, uh, really get into the obscure vintage world and maybe he'll divulge some secrets for you.
0: Also, um, <laughs> There, this is a good segue to a brief uh, news item we've talked about previously. But special auction for the Brian Lavalette Scholarship Foundation. Uh, his watch will be sold alongside a swatch uh, from Pope Francis, watches from Coach K, um, Jan Stenerud, uh, Terry Bradshaw, Tony Shalhoub, uh, Charlie Dunn, Eric Wind, etc. Uh, maybe we can convince Tony and, and Gabe to donate a watch each so each of the quartet can uh, be represented as the Significant Watches podcast, but, um,
1: but very excited. Eric, um. what do the listeners get if they donate a watch? Do, you, do they get a certain amount of uh, hours per week of your time via phone call, FaceTime, or appointment? Is that something that you're auctioning off as well for donators? Yeah. I'll give them a two minute forty nine
0: second FaceTime direct with me with my phone on, uh, do not disturb. Uh, and uh, <laughs> no, seriously though, if anyone listening would like to donate a watch, all the proceeds are are going to scholarships that really help uh, people around the world. Um, you know pursue their studies so it's a a great cause Wright is hosting the auction still planned for December in Chicago and uh, hopefully we'll see you at the auction and hopefully you'll donate a watch so that's good and then um, you know one other thing that I, I wanted to discuss uh is the Monaco Legend auction, which we, we previously discussed, that took place um, on April twenty third and twenty fourth in Monaco, and it was uh, really an unbelievable auction. It did over twenty one million USD total, um, and with two hundred seventy nine lots. If you take that, you know, twenty one million divided by the two hundred seventy nine, two hundred seventy three lots. That is an average uh, value of seventy six thousand. There were a number of small number of watches that passed, but uh, you know you're looking at about eighty thousand dollars per watch that sold, uh, which is incredibly strong. That's that is a number that uh, you know makes the big auction houses jealous, um, and uh, is just you know phenomenal to to be doing that. They got you know essentially no coverage uh, as an auction, not Hodinkee or other places outside of uh, significant watches. But, um, you know, very, very strong results across the board. For me, the craziest set of numbers were for the Stella dials, um, which were a lot 264 to 272. They had a 18238, which we call in the business, a double quick um, because you can, you know, quick set both the day of the week and the date uh, with the taxi cab yellow dial. Sell for 650,000 euros, um, which is just, you know, never in my wildest dreams would you you think almost $700,000 for one of those. Uh, And then just a whole array, your blue uh, 18038, with uh, kind of that sea blue for 331,000 euro, a red with diamonds, uh, 18049 with a can jar on the case back, 273,000. The kind of sea foam teal green, 260,000. Um, they had a pink uh, one with diamonds go for 300 over 300,000 unreal numbers um, Eric is
2: there a reason the yellow one I'm just looking at the results now too um, is there a reason the yellow one went for 650 while the others went for 200s 300s is it just that color is more desirable uh, yeah yellow is always that yellowish orange is always considered the rarest and most
0: valuable but um, and the condition obviously looked insane but I mean that is nuts so um And it's not like it's a one-off lot, so that's why it's even more impressive. There were nine Stella dial watches in a row, and they all went nuts. Funnily enough, the red dial was was the cheapest at one hundred seventeen thousand euro eighteen oh three eight without diamonds, but then then you know all the rest were two hundred thousand above. So uh, yeah, I mean. I have no idea I wasn't there at the auction. Uh, I wonder I wonder if Rolex was bidding on some of these maybe for their museum, I have no idea. But um, I don't know if they have any things like that in the museum, they have been bidding on things kind of reconstituting the collection a bit. Um, so that was just amazing. The 3448 that came from uh, John Goldberger, or Montanari did 747,000 euro. Which I, you know, was was strong. It could have been even better. One of my favorite watches was lot two forty seven, which previously sold at Sotheby's a few years ago um, for I think around thirteen thousand. This went for thirty two thousand euro. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was a very impressive showing, uh, and uh, you know, very good, good for the market to see these kind of results.
2: Is that kind of the high-level trend or takeaway, just like strong results all around? I mean, you were mentioning a lot of vintage Rolex, I suppose, throughout the the summary there, but is that the the high-level takeaway? Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, they had a 6200
0: also from the Goldberger collection that did 520 euro, uh, 520,000 euro they had. Uh, I was going to ask you
2: about that one, Eric, actually, because you mentioned that on the podcast uh, yeah. that you and maybe some clients were, were lo- watching that to see how how it did and how the market was. And it sounds like you're yeah. pleased with the I, result and it shows strong. It was, yeah, it was solid. Um, it's good result. There was a um, waffle
0: dial 6350, which I would th- always think is a beautiful watch. I think this set the record. Yeah. Um, now for a waffle dial beating the one that was at Phillips New York in December 2020. This went for 136,500 euro. Uh, So that was, I thought, a really good result. Um, Yeah, just a wide variety, some enamel dial uh, Rolexes that did really well, blue dial for 143,000 and a green dial uh, for 143,000. Those were, you know, those are small watches, 33, 34 millimeter. So, yeah, I think it, it kind of continues with that trend of some of these 1950s Rolex watches, you know, Oyster Perpetuals and other things that are end date just from the fifties and things like that, that he's done extremely well with, um, you know, compared to the bigger auction houses. So it's, uh, you know, it, it all goes down to the condition, condition, condition thing we talk about. But uh, yeah, it's it's really nice to see the market doing so well.
2: Gabe, Charlie, anything you want to add about Monaco before we look uh, forward to the Swiss auctions a little bit more?
3: Uh, not about Monaco, but about small auction houses. Um, Loop this had a crash that sold uh, yesterday for like. A million, what was it a million, 50,000? One and a half, one and a half million. Oh, one and a half million, One and a half million
0: and With 1.65 million. Jeez,
3: I mean, you know, talk about big, big results, uh, you know, an online only platform. But
2: uh, yeah, serious result there. Congrats and the, them. I was just looking, they sold a Paris crash that just closed today as we're recording for 277,000 US, which... Probably, is I guess that's been bargain. for that model.
3: Total bargain,
2: um, bargain yeah, compared to compared to the last <laughs> yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I think it's probably more than the one that Monaco sold last last fall. I I can't quite remember, but they continue to go up. Um, which yeah, it's cool to see for them, I suppose. Good for those sellers too, because I don't think they charge a commission on the seller. I think they just charge the the buyer's premium. So um, a win for them. I think in the Monaco um, auction
1: kind of the highlight from what I was looking at was some of the Patek pocket watches. I thought there were some pretty excellent ones within there. Lot 177, I think also lot 168 which is a time only, I think with the LaSalle uh, hands if I'm pronouncing if I'm pronouncing that correctly. It was a two-tone sector which was really cool. And then there was one um particular one. It was a uh, one lot number 129 which was a uh retailed by Serpico Elino and It had a uh, really nice kind of um, guichet or pyramid dial with the cartouche Patek Philippe. Um, That was a really cool one, too. So I think that I like seeing good pocket watches come up for auction. Um, It's kind of uh, the one thing that I was really paying close attention to with that one. Yeah, and um, going back to the, the crash, I mean, it's...
0: The prophetic words of uh, Tony Traina, but we were talking about how the one, the 1970 one that sold at Sotheby's in November at you know 800 some thousand US was a bargain uh, relatively that it should have been a million dollars, and then look, you know, six months later, one goes for double at 1.65 million with the premium. So uh, whoever bought that watch at Sotheby's Geneva in November did very well. Uh, One kind of funny thing with uh, the Loop This watch, when they announced it, it was quoted as a 1969 uh, and with the London Hallmark M, but then uh, someone I believe told them that the M is actually for 1967, which makes it worth uh, significantly more because it was the first year of production. So they they amended it from nineteen sixty-nine to nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, and that was kind of a happy happy discovery, if you will.
2: I saw that in the description just as I was looking at the result and I was wondering what that was about exactly. So that's interesting. Um it's, Yeah. And they they linked to uh they list your name on the listing, <laughs> Tony, and linked to your Yeah, they showed me that. Uh, um yeah, so that's cool. Always love a shout out. Um yeah. and then I think uh, is it Christie's has a a nineteen eighty nine nineteen ninety London crash, which you know I don't think it'll hit a million or anything like that, but but will be an exciting result to watch um, this week out of Switzerland too. Um, yeah. Do you guys want to talk Royal Oak a little bit more? Um, I think the way I was gonna, you guys don't want to talk about it anymore. Damn. No, okay.
0: No. No, we no, no, too much no. hype I was for going me. To it's too much to, hype for me, I was I'm gonna, gonna
2: implode. I, I was going to tee it up this way and then you guys Royal can just joke. shut me down if you, if you want me, if you want to. But, you know, from my perspective, there's 223 Royal Oaks or whatever Eric said. Uh, there's like three that are, you know, probably the, the biggest, biggest lots, I would say. There's the the A2, obviously, which is, you know, one of the four original Royal Oaks and, you know, it's never been opened and all of that type of stuff at Phillips. There's the one that's probably from Carl Lagerfeld that's got the PBD covering on it and then there's obviously gerald genta's two-tone royal oak his personal royal oak uh, at sotheby's and I- i'm wondering it, which if any get you guys most excited um and and if any of them get you excited what's most exciting um about them to you there's
0: one thing that i wanted to mention with a2 um they're a uh, great article by friend of the show and frequent listener logan baker who has told us we're the only podcast he listens to but uh logan did hands-on with a2 um and i was shocked a friend of mine who was previously in the auction industry as well pointed it out to me but uh they did not open the watch uh Alex Gopey is quoted saying, we decided we're not going to touch anything, we're not going to open it, we're not going to wind the watch or turn the hands. I um, personally find that a bit curious, having worked at an auction house. I mean, this is not a hard watch to open. It's not really at risk of anything if you unscrew the back. Um, I There's kind of rust forming around the screws if you look at the screw by four o'clock. Uh, on the front, there's rust by one of the screws on the back. Um the one kind of to the top top right, uh essentially right of 12 o'clock. If you're looking at it front, there's also rust on the crown side. I mean I ex- expect personally when I'm bidding at something at auction that the watch has been opened because you know you always wonder about the movement being correct, obviously not being replaced, numbers matching, because Audemars Piguet has records of movement numbers with case numbers, and it is a frequent occurrence with Royal Oaks, particularly perpetual calendars, that the movements were swapped during a service, which does affect the value significantly to the tune of tens of thousands of dollars, because people want the original movement, kind of like a car with the 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 engine number matching the, the VIN and everything else. So I, I find it not a good precedent for the auction house, not to open the watch. I find it uh, a little bit nuts personally, Um, but you know, people can decide what they think, but I I find it crazy.
2: Gabe is a collector who, you know, we've talked about before you bidding at, at auction. Um, do you agree with Eric's take on the matter, if you have an opinion?
3: Uh, I mean, I, when I'm buying a vintage watch, I kind of expect it to come needing a service, whether it's bought privately or from an auction, especially if it's getting shipped, high likelihood that it's going to need a service. I mean, I, I'd like to know that it's okay, um, but you know, I don't feel one way or another on this one I'm I'm not bidding on it anyway so you know it makes no difference uh, to me honestly but I think it's I would have liked them to at least include a picture of of the movement so you know you can just figure Put it, it out.
0: out yeah exactly
3: yeah <laughs> yeah take an x-ray of it or something you know uh <laughs> yeah you know, um but yeah, I, I, you know, I, I find it to be curious. I've I, I haven't seen that done on you know, I, it, it's it's odd. We've seen really complicated watches like one of ones, one of two, you know, splits, you know, from the '30s, that kind of thing, where they'll open them, they'll let you play with them, they'll let you wind them up, um, you know, and, and again, just like Eric said, this is a royal oak. It's not, you know. It's not too complicated. It's a two-hand watch. Um, so it, it is a little bit of a curious thought process there. But at the end of the day, I, I don't think it'll it'll affect too much the value unless somebody buys it and does open it and realizes it's not a matching set.
2: Charlie, what do you think? Do we need to send you over to Geneva and, and pop that thing open for us? Yeah, yeah, I was about to say,
1: I could, I could open that thing without any hiccups, to be honest. Just, just
2: hand me a flathead screwdriver. I'll get in there.
1: <laughs> Not a Phillips screwdriver, but
2: I'm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's pretty good. We just lost Charlie. Um, okay, well, I think that closes out the Royal Oak discussion for the day. Uh it sounds like, thankfully, no one, no one wants to talk about the Lagerfeld or the Gerald Genta's personal Royal Oak. Um, uh, so no, no, we'll, we'll leave it there. That. I
3: actually would would oh, out, God. Out of those three. I would. I would rather own the Lagerfelds, and I would rock it all day.
1: Just Is it Carl Lagerfelds? Agree. 100% Is it Carl Lagerfelds though? I mean, has it been explicitly stated that that's belonging
3: to him? I don't think they have the documentary proof to back it up. So uh, I think they're just saying it's claimed to be.
2: Uh, yeah it's all circumstantial from what I understand. I read, yes. you know, another shout out to Logan Baker and and his James is his photographer over as they do their rounds in Switzerland. Um, Another friend of the program, I suppose. Um, They did a nice post about the Lagerfeld one. And they basically said, you know, in parentheses, this is probably his watch. Um, It's circumstantial evidence. And they don't have any, you know, attestation from the Lagerfeld estate or anything like that. Um, But as best we can tell, Lagerfeld and the king of spain king juan carlos the were kind of the only people wearing an original 5402 in pvd it was um you know a new technology at the time so it's not like they were PVDing watches all the time like they do nowadays so so that's that's my understanding that as to what they've said about that
1: so See, PVD, oh, wait, yeah. does pvd accumulate any sort of patina like a gold will or perhaps like a silver will is that worth even looking into? I didn't even thought about this until right now, but I would assume the only thing that it would um, result in is maybe slight chipping and such. I can't imagine that people have gone through the forensics of of, of PVD cases yet. This, this seems like an interesting topic though. I, I
3: just don't know enough about PVD cause I've, I've mostly focused on DLC coding, because it's much more resistant. Um, so uh,
0: there, you know. it's actually the field of PVD is there's a lot of new scholarship developing. In fact, uh, Nick Bebeck and Tag Hoyer has spent a lot of time analyzing the the early monacos with the moniker Dark Lord, but the blacked out monacos, the Pasadena's, um, some of those early PVD Hoyers, which were supposedly inspired by the Automar RPG Royal Oak blacked out that the king of spain had um thumbs down to the king of spain he left a friend of a friend with a massive bill at a london club once um by uh, going to the bathroom and then just leaving <laughs> and leaving tens of thousands of dollars in wine charges on these guys that didn't even know it was the king of spain uh so it left them in a tough situation but um Maybe if he sold his Royal Oak, he could uh, afford. That. I found it kind of, in, uh, you know, the argument that this is felt So, so going, I guess, back to PVD. There's some of the ways it was done were incredibly toxic with incredibly toxic materials, supposedly. So people that did some of the early PVD died horrible and early deaths, is my understanding. Uh, so. Uh, oh, my not good. Um, and there are various different approaches to it. There's a lot of talk with the few people that did survive that did that kind of process uh, to figure out exactly how it was done because it's kind of been lost to the ages, even though it's just 50 years ago. Um, so that's interesting. When I look at that famous photo of Lagerfeld, you know, with his uh, right leg sitting on top of his left. Knee and the photo of the watch, there does appear to my eye to be some some wear to it, um, to the PVD and the wear on that lower part of the bracelet um, below six o'clock, does not seem to be in the exact same places as the watch. Um, so, you know, I don't know. I looked at that photo; is pretty high res available even on the Hodinki article, and I'm just not necessarily convinced it's the same watch. You know, essentially, if you read Logan's article, the only real background is that they have that the watch was built in 1973 and sent to a retailer in Italy where it sold, uh, and Lagerfeld was in Rome. I mean there are a lot of people in Rome (laughs) we're traveling through. So I don't know if that makes the connection there. Uh, But uh, that's what I, I, when you just kind of forensically compare the photos of the watch as it currently sits with the photo on Lagerfeld's wrist, it appears like it's already been kind of worn when Lagerfeld's wearing it with some wear to the PVD at some of those inner links and things, and it doesn't seem to match. Uh, from my eye, you know, spending ten minutes um so that that's interesting the The big bummer with Genta's personal Royal Oak is that it's a service style with Swiss made, so it's reprinted. When I saw that, I was devastated uh and uh wonder you know when that was done, but it is uh something that hopefully a p buys for their museum. I would imagine they'll be willing to go to almost any number. They bought the Genta drawing of the Royal Oak in the Sotheby's auction, um, which we discussed. Shout out to Tony for being one of the few to cover the Nautilus drawing that actually went for more than the Royal Oak drawing in an online auction recently, about 722000 Again, I still I'm baffled by Sotheby's putting those drawings in an online online auctions and not putting the Royal Oak and Nautilus drawings in the Geneva live auction during the weekend of the whole Royal Oak extravaganza that would have been kind of the ultimate from my perspective and they should have been million dollars plus so that I'm sure AP was happy to to get it for in the 600,000 dollar range so um yeah so that's uh that'll be interesting to see how his his Royal oak does i would I would expect it'll go for a big number because it's his and I would expect AP to buy it but uh, the condition was really a bummer
2: well maybe we can leave. Audemars Piguet and the Royal Oak there for now. I promise that we would get back to, to vintage paddock after um, Gabe mentioned it. So maybe we can talk about that for a little bit. Um, I was going to start by mentioning the Novadian collector sale that Sotheby's held uh, a couple of weeks ago in Hong Kong. Uh, it was a kind of a curated sale of one American collector, I believe,'s collection of vintage paddocks, some really great perpetual calendar chronographs and some some beautiful Calatravas as well. Um, The headline of the sale, I suppose, was the pink gold Gobi signed, $24.99, which went for, I believe, $7.7 million, which is a record for the reference now. So a really strong result. It was um, just the headliner of a a number of strong results for the the auction. Um, Maybe, Eric, I'll start with you here. If you want to talk specifically about this sale or more broadly, I suppose, about Vintage Paddock and what's happening there. But I'll turn it over to you to, to take the, the Vintage Paddock topic wherever you please.
0: Uh, yeah, so the auction was phenomenal in terms of results. Um, you know, uh, 24 dollars Pink Gobi selling for, was it 6, $7.6 million? Um, the 1518s and 2499s doing incredibly well. Um, even he had a thirty nine forty, which looked uh, pretty good with a French um, dial that went for nine hundred forty five thousand HKD, which is one hundred twenty thousand USD. So the thirty nine forties in platinum, you know, are pushing a hundred thousand now. Uh, European watch company had one for ninety nine thousand two months ago or something that that uh, sold pretty quickly, you know, probably somewhere around there. Um, So, you know, as expected, 3940s are becoming uh, quite iconic uh, and hot. Um, The the letter is not online that was in the front of the catalog, but it's one of the funniest kind of introductory notes I've ever read. Uh, So if you can get your hands on a physical copy of the catalog, I recommend it. Um, It's Sam Hines. Essentially waxing on about how great the Nevadian is. Uh, and it, it is, it's, it is insane. In the end, it's like, there's only one Nevadian, the only, the greatest. That's how it ends. <laughs> I was just on the floor laughing, <laughs> uh, reading it. I mean, I love you, Sam, if you're listening, but that, that was really, uh, but it was a great auction, $40 million for everything. So, uh, I hope, uh, the owner is happy with the work you did for him. He should be, um, you know, the, was kind of a mix of conditions from my perspective. Not everything was, there was a lot of, a lot of dials that had been sanded, a lot of kind of work on a number of these watches, service dials, etc. Um, you know, outright service dials, not just sanding on some of these things. So it's you know, it's like the world of of vintage PP. There's a lot of work that's done to dials, replacement dials, etc. There's a five thirty in pink gold that had looked to have a service dial. The paddock signature was you know totally wrong um and a bunch of of the kind of rectangular watches and things with service dials uh so yeah i didn't really love the condition of any of the watches that much except the 2499 gobi looked good from what i saw of course uh and um they had a 2508 in pink that looked maybe like it was lightly polished, that wasn't bad. And the 3940, which the gentleman was the original owner of, looked really solid. Um so you know, after looking at additional photos. So uh yeah, we're seeing strong results there. Monaco Legend at a 3940 that did really well. Um there's a number coming up in Geneva, so I expect those will do well, particularly the white metals. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a great time to be alive. Is all
2: I can say. Same thing with 3970s, Eric. Go ahead. Actually, was maybe. the was the Sotheby's
3: the? Did they also? Was, I, I I can't locate it now, but I saw a buyer thirty nine forty that did a crazy number. Like whoa, you know these things weren't tra- we're trading at slight premiums, not nothing, you know, nothing crazy. And I think this one was like I, I want to say north of three hundred thousand U.S. Uh, I, I might be off, but I, yeah, it was, uh, geez.
0: yeah, it was almost 400,000. Um, I loved the watch, uh, had a lot of kind of patina to the case oxidation. Um, but it was number 19. It's, those are some of the most special watches, the original 25. Um, and I like it because it's, uh, it had an English dial. Which, you know, a lot of those had German dials. You know, um, people don't, I don't know that we've ever discussed this, but having been both at, you know, at Christie's and as a dealer, German dials are by far the hardest to sell for 3970s, 3940s, et cetera. Um, you know, certain people have that our Jewish collectors have bad memories of Germany in World War II, so they don't want to touch a German dial. Uh, So it's by far the hardest. People find that interesting. I find English is the easiest. That's probably because I speak English as my primary language and most of my clients speak English. Uh, But I think in general, the market recognizes English as the easiest for 3940s for instance, and 3940s are different than 3970s because it's actually printed on the dial. 3970s, you have discs. Not that those are easy to obtain, but you could theoretically swap the discs um, to be other languages. But English and then French, I think, is the second easiest to sell, then uh, Italian, then German, and sort of the hierarchy uh, is how I view it. So I'm very sensitive about buying a german hmm. dial 3940 because they're hard to sell
3: and i know we haven't done the preview for uh, the preview episode yet for hong kong phillips but there's a doré dial 3940 that's going up for sale there which please anybody listening to this don't bid on it please don't bid on it i'm <laughs> actually interested in this one so please <laughs> i will thank <There's>... you <laughs>
0: The Dore has absolutely taken off uh, over the last year. Anticorum had a 3971 Dore dial that I loved um, in their last auction in November in Geneva, I believe it was. And I was, I bid on it in phenomenal condition with the super large hallmarks on the lugs. And I was ready to go pretty strong and thought I had a good chance. And I was blown away. I think it went for 380000 uh, and uh, okay, don't tell me that. <laughs> and then, uh, Andy Quorum um, has a Dore dial 3970 uh, coming up, but this is kind of the interesting, you know, another kind of interesting topic because it's got a replaced Dore dial, so the dial, uh, probably started, um, you know, as like a normal kind of silvery gold dial and then. Uh, At some point, I want to say around 2010 or 11, the dial got replaced. Um, So, uh, you know, that obviously sells at a discount to if it was all original, but it's not like you can just get that dial. So that'll be interesting to see where it sells. Um, And
2: uh, Can you guys quickly just uh, take a step back real quick and just explain Dory dials, what they are and the appeal of them? Why they trade at a premium?
0: Yeah, so uh, Dory is kind of this goldish pink uh, dial. You know, people use the term salmon. I don't personally love the term salmon because uh, it makes me think of a dead fish. And it has to do, I think, originally in French, salmon was salmon, which meant smoked. And then it was kind of mistranslated into English as salmon. Um, So um, is that right, Gabriel, or not?
3: I was gonna say, don't don't we mostly uh, attribute the, the salmon dials to 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 like the more salmon color versus the Dore is more like a champagne dial? Correct yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but it has the perfect paddock yeah. dials have a little bit of pink to them. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah.
1: But they're also dynamic in the color. They can be very warm, um, yeah. warm pinks. And it, it, it I guess the salmon more so is the term for like actual pink straight pink yeah straight pink dial whereas the smoked is is really can be a deep deep lustery kind of color as well as um has a little bit more of a a bright color as well depending on where it's um positioned in the light
0: yeah Yeah. and i think um liz at is writing an article on the topic of pink dials so i hope that comes out soon but um Yeah, so uh, the dore is more of a gold than a salmon. But depending on the light, can kind of reflect a little bit salmon, not like an outright pink. um, But it's this beautiful color you see on some of the early 3940s, 3941s, and 3970s and 3971s. No one really talked about this until the last year. there was not really a huge premium attributed to these, but then a number of uh, Asian collectors, including Jacqueline, a dose of time, began talking about it and buying them. And, uh, you know, once people start talking about something and realizing it's special and rare and beautiful, then, you know, prices escalate. So uh, I expect we'll see some big numbers for these pieces coming up, as we saw with the early 3940 selling for almost 400,000 at, uh, at Sotheby's,
3: Hong Kong. So, Gabe, we just blew your shot at it by talking about it in
0: depth. But. Yeah, and I was
3: just looking at the estimates on the anti-quorum one, which I think sounds high. Or you know, it's you know they're they're saying one hundred eight thousand US to two hundred sixteen thousand US. Uh, potentially it could go much higher. You know, I, I it's it's funny. I I one of my favorite uh, vintage. Watches that I own is a five seventy with a Doria dial that was like zero interest at a Phillips Geneva auction, and I just <laughs> and I think it's awesome, but you know that thing for years, you know never went up in value. So you know, maybe we'll see because I I don't even know how rare if or if there is any rarity to five seventy Doria dials, but you know yeah, it's, it's a cool look. It has a really cool look, especially with the yellow cases. Yeah, that's what we you yeah. were
2: wearing when uh, we met back in December, I think, Gabe. Um, yeah, that's right. Maybe <laughs> that's we should downplay right. it. Actually, I should be like, you know what? It was it looked terrible in person. Dory <laughs> dials. You know what? They're great in Instagram photos, but they don't wear well. It's overhyped, <laughs> Yeah, it's overhyped. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it's Gabe's lucky watch, uh, but yeah. So the just to so people looking at home can look at the lot. It's lot four hundred and eighty at Antiquorum in the live auction, one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand Swiss. I think this probably came back because of their, it's a 3971. So it's got um, the, SN- the Sapphire case back, which screws on. Uh, and then the th- basically the 3971 and 3940 are kind of interesting references because they have Sapphire case backs and no additional solid case back. Uh, and then Patek decided that was a nice feature, the Sapphire case back. So then the later 3970s and 3940s both had double case backs, except for the Platinum, which did not have a Sapphire case back. Uh, So it's a 3971. It was previously sold at Antiquorum in 2011 um, in November. It was born with the the Opaline Silver dial, but during an overhaul, the customer requested the watch to be fitted with the Opaline Dore dial which was installed on the watch. Apparently, the original they say the original dial no longer available, so maybe it wasn't returned or it was returned and sold. Um, and it says when it was first sold by us in 2011, the description stated that the watch came with a Patek Philippe letter confirming the substitution of the dial during a service on customer's request. That letter is no longer available. So I always hate seeing something it sold at auction with something missing when it comes up later it happens people misplace stuff but uh yeah i think it, it's still a beautiful watch
1: and should do well but um not not
0: like the other watch that went for about 380,000
1: one thing that never gets misplaced though is an omega presentation box that will <laughs> always be able to be found <laughs> cuz
0: they're so big
1: the new ones yeah we had a, a modern speedmaster
0: in uh with the, one of the last, with the 1861 movement, and that box was like the size of a table. It was kind of insane.
1: Amiga, get your mind right and start inviting us to your pool parties. Yeah, I, exactly. I think it's bigger than the box for the Grandmaster Chime, which I found, by the
0: way, as another kind of little auction anecdote, uh, Monaco Legend had a box for the Grandmaster Chime with the watch roll, USB pen, charger, and loop for 13,000, it sold for 13,000 euro. But where is the Grandmaster Chime? They only made seven of them. So <laughs> it's so funny that a box got separated or it was a prototype box or something, but absolutely ridiculous to see that box being sold by itself.
3: That's so funny. More boxes doing well at auction. <laughs> uh, it reminds me, it reminds me when I got. When I got my when I got my gru,al the the box had to be shipped separately because it was something like twenty pounds. Had this huge chunk of sapphire in it, and it it was just this monstrous thing. And I and I remember telling the dealer, I was like, any chance you I could send this back to you, and I'll like pay you a storage fee i, I don't want this
2: <laughs> you know it
3: was this is like in the days of like you know i mean still now but you know those MBNF boxes which are like awkward shapes and so you have to keep them in the shipping box just so you can stack them somewhere and it, you know i like the you know like the packaging for example for like the music machine is like three and a half feet by you know like four feet deep it, it, it's it's it it's a little ludicrous but, right. but uh the boxes aren't crazy. I've had
0: clients also ask if they can if I could store stuff for them for a fee because it's so crazy. It's uh it's not like the back in the day in the nineteen forties, if you bought a fifteen, eighteen in steel, you get like a little four inch box, you know, and it's like <laughs> that's that's the way it should be.
3: It's cool. And, and I, I I don't know about you guys, but I've never run across anybody who actually like looks at the box cares about the box or pays attention to it. It's just this annoying accessory that comes with a watch, honestly. And you know, there are a couple of people like uh, Romain Goche who you buy, you buy the watch and it comes in like this very flat tray, like box that you can just like slide into, into yeah. a safe or a drawer. And it has like a, you know, like a carry case and that's it. And I love that <laughs> or you know, even like the old Patek boxes, anything small, tiny that fits in it. Anything that fits in a drawer yeah, gets an A plus in my book. Everything else is useless and excessive in my opinion. It should come like a, like an option, like on a car, like box, yes, no, you know?
0: Exactly, yeah, exactly.
1: So um, the LA Times is recently covering what appeared to be gang related or gang coordinated thefts of high end timepieces where people would go around and, um, you know, just go to a local restaurant or something of that nature. and They would get tips of people wearing, you know, high end uh, sports watches that I guess what I took away from it was that there was some sort of effort where people were getting you know, tipped off of where the people were in, in the city and someone would come and follow them in their car and, and jumped at their house and get home invasions or in their driveways. Right, Eric? Yeah. So yeah, this article
0: among my California clients got a lot of uh, attention, but essentially there are LA Times did a article there the police, local police did a big investigation. I think there were over 300 instances of this last year, but people that are tipping off uh, gang members outside, apparently a lot affiliated with the Bloods and Crips, uh, but they would be working in a restaurant or a jewelry store and then tip people off outside the store to follow them because they had expensive jewelry or expensive watches on. And then they get followed to their house, you know, when they're pulling in the garage or driveway or whatever, the other car comes up, they jump out, run in, you know, uh, kind of movie style, run under the garage door as it's closing or whatever. And then, uh, you know, slide in and, um, you know, rob the people inside their house. There were at least two, two murders during these sort of altercations. Uh, and it's becoming a big deal uh, I remember the, you know, the the distant past six years ago when no one knew what a Nautilus was or a Royal Oak was, uh, but now everyone does. So um, now the the report didn't mention any specific brands, did it? It did not, but it's obvious they're focused on hype models, Royal Oaks, Aquanauts, uh, Nautiluses, Richard Neal, in particular, is of keen interest. Uh, so, you know, my... Retort is, and I think many, many people are are doing this, but vintage watches provide a natural antidote because people don't know what they are. Um, They, you know, they have to see it as some old watch. First of all, second, they're much harder to fence and sell, you know, because of serial numbers and the community of buyers is smaller. So um, if you have a vintage Submariner, it's not that easy to sell um, you know there's an interesting article GQ did a few years ago it's called something like Time Thiefs or Time Heist about this gang of uh, watch store robbers in Los Angeles County and a guy would basically try on a gold Daytona in a store he was a former minor leaguer who was kicked out for stealing from a teammate uh, and he would try on the gold Daytona run out the door Uh <laughs> And then sell the watch for two thousand dollars is what he would get from the fence who then sent it to Russia and would get I don't know fifteen twenty thousand for it. No box and papers, obviously, maybe a box they would add to it but um the it's essentially you know a lot harder to do that with a vintage watch because you know there's not like a criminal underworld of people looking for vintage you know. Subs and GMTs and things like that. So, uh, my recommendation is wear your vintage watches, Hoyers and cars You know, your life will be a lot safer if you wear uh, vintage Hoyers, Omegas,
1: and cars In Los Angeles, we should say.
0: And New York,
2: in London. and Yeah, it's a big London problem. For well, sure. There's Judith been places. stories in Chicago, too. It's every big city nowadays. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a big deal. So wear your vintage watches, buy vintage watches. You know,
2: also indies. Nobody knows what those <laughs> are. Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Read your escapement. Read strictly yeah. <laughs> read with vintage. You're dot com. You are safe
3: with uh, you are safe with your Urworks, You know, <laughs> your MBNFs. Nobody, nobody's gonna bother you on that. Uh, <laughs> break into your house. Well, I think with the threat of uh
0: home invasions looming, make sure to wear your vintage watches when you're out and about in the big cities or small cities or really anywhere on planet earth. Uh, And we are so grateful for uh, your listening. We hope you enjoyed episode 14. Very excited to see how all these auctions do in Geneva. And uh, we'll talk more about Hong Kong in our next episode too. And uh, thanks again. Please send us your Feedback, your topics that you'd like us to discuss. We have a long laundry list of things for us to talk about, and we will talk soon. Thank you.